Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I want to thank uh, whoever did the bulletin cover today. Who? Alyssa. Alyssa. Thank you, Alyssa. This is good. Sorry to embarrass you, but we're asking that we've asked the young people to help us with bulletin covers, and uh, this was really good. So thank you. Ephesians chapter 2. Also, in your bulletin, you'll have a handout with the Bible verses. We're not going to put anything on the screen today. Um, we're going to look at the Bible verses here, because um, sometimes I may want to compare one with another and such, and so um, you can keep this handy as well. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verse 11, and then it's going to seem like I'm stopping very abruptly. Uh, because I'm going to stop at the end of verse 19, which is in fact a comma, but that's all the farther we're going to do this morning, and I want us to, uh, to see this sort of section together. So Ephesians 2 verse 11, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just ask and pray that you will help us. We're frail. We're very finite. We get distracted very easily. Um, we... We need very much to hear what you have to say to us today because in this book, you have determined to bless us, to richly, richly bless us, to do us good, to pour out grace upon us. And that's what the book of Ephesians is about. And we ask that you will help us to just simply sit here this morning and realize how incredibly blessed we are. Please, we pray, teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And teach us, Father, that we will not only feel blessed this morning, but that we will go through our days and even months and years in, in, the, in the presence of and in the climate of and with a heart rejoicing in how much you have blessed us. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Paul, in the book of Ephesians so far, as I've pointed out before, has really not told the Christians to do anything yet. He's not given any commands. 
One command he gave, which was a little mild, is in verse 11, therefore remember. And basically what he wants them to remember is what they once were and what they are now. But other than that, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to come down to verse 19. God, Paul has not, and the Holy Spirit through, through, through God, uh, I mean the Holy Spirit through Paul, has not given us any specific things to do or any commandments or list of do's and don'ts. He's simply told us who we are and why we are who we are and what God has done for us in Christ and how God is to be glorified and praised. And remember, this book began with Paul praising God and saying, bless you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And now, for the next two, and a, two chapters almost, he has opened up those blessings, blessing after blessing after blessing. And in this section, which we've looked at already, he turned to the Gentiles. And let you look at that in verse 11, because Ephesus was a Gentile city, primarily Gentiles, although there was a sizable Jewish population at the time. The church in Ephesus was Jew and Gentile, maybe majority Gentile. And Paul turns to them and says, listen, you who once were Gentiles, you were on the outside. You were on the outside. You were strangers. You were foreigners. You were the uncircumcised. By, and called that by the circumcised. God was working through Israel. God was working, kept Israel safe, kept them isolated through this law. But now God has come and he has eliminated all that, brought you inside, brought you all together. And now you're on the inside and now you're blessed. Now you're members of the kingdom. Now that's where we get to at verse 18. He says, for through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Both Jew and Gentile have been made one new humanity and we have access to God by the spirit. Then he says in verse 19, and he opens up verse 19 through verse 22 by giving three illustrations of this. He says, verse 19, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but, and here's the first illustration, your fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, you are members of the kingdom of God. You are in the, the kingdom, the, if you could put it this way, the political entity, the government of God. You are in the kingdom of God. You were once not in the kingdom of God, and now you are in this glorious worldwide kingdom that God is developing, the kingdom that's going to win, the kingdom that is going to reign, the kingdom that is going to take over the earth, the kingdom which one day all the new heavens and new earth will surround. You're in that. Then he says, you are, notice verse 19 right at the very end, you are members of the household of God. And then, Lord willing, as we move ahead, the third illustration is you're the temple. So what we're going to look at today is this simple little phrase in your Bible where he says, and members of the household of God. Some of your Bibles will say members of the family of God, and the word can do all of those. In fact, there's some interesting things going on here in the word, in the words. Let me try to help you a little bit by seeing how Paul originally wrote this in the Greek. In the Greek language, uh, oikos is a word that means a house, a dwelling, or a household and family. And sometimes we use the, our English language like that. We'll say, this is my house, or they might say, this is the house or the household of so-and-so. Uh, when J Joshua says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he means his family. Oikos is that. The word that is used here is oikaos, oikaos, and that means belonging to a household or family, 
related by blood, a kinsman. And that's why some of your Bibles will translate you are in the family of God or you are in the household of God. That's what he means here. And that's the word that is used uh, other places in Scripture that really point to somebody's household. In your handout, uh, the first verse I have, there's 1 Timothy 5, 8, it says this. And if, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And here the word is referring to somebody, his family, those who are in his household and such. And so we are in the household of God. That's what Paul is saying here. And he says here earlier, though, in verse 19, he says, you are no longer foreigners. Now, interesting, this is why I wanted to point this out. That word also has oikos in it, but it's this word, para oikos, para oikos, and para is a, is a preposition which means near or close. And the word means to live near, but the word actually meant to be a stranger or foreigner, one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship. We, we would almost today use the phrase an illegal alien. And so what Paul is saying here is, you were once para oikos, but now you are oikeos. You, are, you were once a refugee. You were once a non-citizen. You were once living near the people of God, but not in the people of God, not in God's family. But now you are in God's family. You are part of God's household. Now, Paul has already been saying this. He's already been alluding to this and talking about this earlier in the book of Ephesians. Flip over to chapter 1. And notice how Paul began as he goes into eternity past, and he says this in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And there we're told that we were predestined to be adopted as God's children. We were predestined to be a part of this household, to be a part of this family. And notice here, as you kind of broaden your thinking right now about the other teachings of Scripture, how the Bible speaks about this idea that we are related to and in the family of God. You're born again, the Bible says. Born of God, John likes to say. You are of God. You are born of the Spirit. You, are, you have been, and Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, you have been made alive. You have been made alive in Christ. And you have been brought into, born into, into this family. And it is the family of God, the household of God, God's children, God's family that he is forming. So think about this. This is actually incredible. God is forming a family. God is bringing together and gathering together a family, his family. There's an amazing message here that Paul is trying to get to the Ephesian Gentiles and saying, you Gentiles, you are in this family. You were once uncircumcised, strangers and aliens. You're in this family now. You're in God's family now. You were once, and, and, and this is what he said in chapter 2, you were once dead in trespasses and sins. You were once followers of the prince of the power of the air. You were once living according to the will of their, your own flesh and desire. You were once children of wrath. 
But now through Christ, through the blood, through forgiveness, through justification, through salvation, through God's predestinating adoption, you have been brought in and have been made beloved children of God. That's what's being said here. Now this says a lot about God and this says a lot about us. And I'm going to begin with God and then we're going to go to us. This says a lot about God. You know, children don't think a lot about their parents. They don't. My, my, my mother just died, and, and, and during the time of her dying and, and, uh, and, sin, and the funeral and everything like that, I, I did a lot of thinking about her. I was sitting beside her bed as she was uh, in her last final days. I, I did a lot of thinking about her and, and all that she had done and all that she meant to me and, and such. Children don't think about their parents very much. Uh, in fact, children usually don't think about their parents until they have children, and then they realize, wow, you guys put up with a lot, because I didn't realize how hard this is. And that's what, but so let's just pause for a minute and think about God, and think about him as our father, and, and, and what is going on here, because this is amazing stuff. First of all, let's just think about God. Think about God for a minute. We should be thinking about God, by the way, all the time, <laughs> but this, let's, just, let's just focus right now. Think about God for a minute. God. God. God is self-existent. That means nobody creates God, nobody makes God. God is life. God is this, this ongoing, constant, artesian well of life. God is just, he's like the sun that is constantly blowing up with these nuclear reactions and making all of this radiation and all of this light. God is life. God is life. God never existed. God always, never had a, a beginning with a, a time when he didn't exist. God has always existed. He is life. He is eternal life. He is constant life. He is an eternal God and he is a glorious God and he's majestic. He's huge. He's powerful. God is all power. All power. He's infinitely powerful. God's infinitely intelligent. God is all knowledge. God knows everything. God is all wise. God is all just. God is absolutely pure goodness. Pure holiness. Pure beauty of goodness. If you look at God, it's like, it's like pristine goodness. You're just seeing this infinite amount of just goodness and righteousness and holiness and beauty and and that's who God is. God is triune, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God is absolutely glorious and and so much grandeur and majesty and greatness. And and listen, listen. God is infinitely all of these things and therefore God takes infinite delight in himself. Now that's not total egotism and things like that. It's, it's the only thing that's right. God takes total delight and has perfect happiness in himself, in who he is. And that's why for God to choose to make a family is really a mystery. It's a beautiful, powerful Profound mystery that God would even go outside of himself and start creating. That God was so perfectly, infinitely, 100% 
in delight and pleasure with himself and communing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in infinite holiness, infinite purity, infinite goodness, infinite love, that would God would begin to create a universe. And that on the planet in that universe, God would create these image bearers of himself. And that God would, from that, having worked out a plan that he had predestined before the foundation of the world, that a, a group, a large group of those people that no man can number from every tribe and nation and language and time, that, that these people would become his children. And they would become his children through his beloved son. And he would have that same sort of love and affection. Not the infinite pure love and affection he has for his very son, uh, the, the, the divine son of God. And yet still he would love us as he loves his son. He would call us his children. He would call him our, their brethren. He would make us part of his family. This is absolutely astounding that God was going to do this. And God determined he was going to bless us. And you know how God was going to really bless us? He was going to bless us by giving us him. We were going to have a relationship with him. There's nothing that God could more bless us with than himself. And he's going to bless us with himself. And you start seeing this theme in scripture. Look at your handout. John certainly picks up on this. In 1 John chapter, one, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, when John writes this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. There it is. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. The greatest title anybody could ever have. Children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. That's why people don't get us. We're children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You look out on us right now and we look pretty average and pretty ordinary. We don't look special. It has not yet uh, been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall share in his glory. For we shall see him as it is, and everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. I want to just point out a little word here because it jumps out at you. And that's the word that Paul is translated by John, uh, translated for us in John. What manner of love. Look at the first line. Behold what manner of love. That word actually in the original Greek language means it's a question of class or quality. And it actually originally the word meant what country is he from? So somebody walks into somebody walks into a village, say, for instance, back in ancient Greece, and he has very different clothing on, very different. They, they don't understand that clothing. It looks different. Or he speaks with a very different language or dialect, or he has a very different uh, tone of color of his skin and, and, and such. And say, what, what country is he from? Where, where is he from? And then that word, it's, it, it becomes this word, patapas. When they used patapas, it was, what is that? What manner is that? What country is that from? And listen how John Stott picked this up on his, in his commentary in First John. And I actually gave that to you as the next quote. He says, the expression, what manner, translates patapas, which meant originally of what country? It is as if the Father's love is so unearthly 
so foreign to this world that John wonders from what country it may come. And that's the sense that you get when you read 1 John 3. Behold, look, John is saying, what manner, Potipas, what country did this come from? What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God? Dear ones, think about this. Think about the relationship of a parent to a child. Think of the relationship of a father to a child. Jimmy, you just gave us a wonderful illustration. Walking up here with your beloved Phoebe in your arms. What favor parents feel toward their children. They are our favorites. We root for them. We yell at the coach, hey, put that kid in. He may stink at athletics, but we don't know that. We just want our kid in to have a good time. We favor our kids. Parents favor their kids. What love we have for our kids. What acceptance we have for our kids. They can be as filthy and smelly and everything, and we still love them and we clean them up. What joy and delight we have in our kids. What, what grace we pour out upon our children. What, what exceedingly great, abundant love we have for our children. What sense of caring we have for them. What a commitment we have to them. What a bond we have to them. One of the great blessings of having pastored almost 20 years in one place is that I've seen young people grow to adults. Perhaps I've performed their marriage. And then I see them have children. And it's been amazing to watch because they're young people and then they grow into the teenage years and then they're teenagers and they, they're doing the teenage thing and they're really cool and they're fun to be around and everything like that and, uh, and such. And then they get married and, 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 and then they change. They, there's this level of maturity and, 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 and that, that, that they bring into that. And then they have children. And it's funny because that teenager who may have been very focused on their, their own selves and, 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 and everything, all of a sudden become focused on another very little human being. And everything in their life is directed toward the good and the caring of that human being. And, and within, within days, if not minutes, they can't imagine their life apart from this little person, this little person that they love and they delight in and they want to be around and that they and they care so deeply for. And that's the miracle of, of, of a parent-child relationship. And this is what is being defined. A parent finds joy in their children. Joy, joy in their children's accomplishments. They, 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 they find joy in, in bringing happiness to their children. Parents like giving their children gifts and giving their children their favorite snack and watching them enjoy it. And, and they delight in the child's joy in, in, in getting that and, and even the child's love back to them. Pa that's parenting. Ch ch parents are, are concerned about their, their, their well-being, their happiness, their maturity. And parents' own happiness is tied up in the happiness of these children and who they are. It's tied up together. And this is what it means to be a parent. And now John is saying, behold, behold, the infinite God of the universe feels this, has this for us, that we would be called the children of God. And then he says, dear ones, we actually are the children of God. We've been born into his kingdom. We're connected to him. His spirit lives within us. We are his children. And parents often always feel like they want their children near them. They want them near them. 
Parents feel this because parents are image bearers of God. They, they want their kid, when they hear that their kids are moving far away, they, that, that's a hardship for them. They, they want their children near them. They want to be near them. And, and then when their children come and visit, they're so excited. I remember when I came back from college, the first time I'd really been away from my family, my, my parents for a long time, was, was college because I, I went far away and so I was away for an entire semester. And I got, I got home, I got a ride home, and I got home, and, and my mom was there, and then I said, where's dad, where's dad, where's dad? And he was up at the barn doing chores. And I went up into the barn, and I walked in, I said, hey, dad. And he came running up to me, and he gave me this big bear hug. He was so excited to see me. And that's what it is to be a parent. And, and God feels all of this for us. Look at John 14 in your handout. Now, Jesus is speaking here, but listen to what is being said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Here is the triune God saying, I want you to live with me. I want you to be with me. I want you near to me. I, the infinite God, who find infinite happiness and joy and amazement, as it were, in myself, in my infinite wisdom, my infinite knowledge, my infinite power, my infinite greatness, my eternity, my, the, the trinish, I, who is a God who is completely self-satisfied with infinite pleasure in myself, have determined that that pleasure will extend to and include you, and you will be a part. And I don't know how this works. I don't know how you add to infinity. But my happiness, my joy will be connected to you. What manner of love is this? In Revelation 21, verse 3, we're given this beautiful vision as we get to the end of the book of Revelation. And John says, and here it is in your handout, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold! The tabernacle of God is with men. The tent of God, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And he himself will be with them and be their God. What manner of love is this that you want to be with us? That the end of, of all creation is you living with us. And then at the end, the next chapter, and there, Revelation 22, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no lamp or nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Notice God is right in the middle of his people. His children are all around him, living around him, and, 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 and in fellowship with him. There's a mystery here. There's a glory here. There's a wonder here that we have such a God that wants us to be his children and he sends his son on a rescue mission to rescue us from our sin, from the power of sin, from the power of Satan, and then he adopts us and cleanses us, sends his spirit, gives us a new heart, puts his spirit in us, and we become his children. And now we have this wonderful privilege of being children of God. And we have access to him. See, that's what's being said here. As Paul is explaining to these Gentiles who at one time were afar off, out there, strangers and foreigners, 
Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This is an important word. This word access means that you have the privilege of going into his very presence. We talk about this a lot in Washington. They talk about access to the president. In corporate America, they talk about access to the CEO or access to, to the chairman of the board. Who has access? Who can walk in there and that? And the word here actually means to be brought in by somebody else. And here we have access to the Father by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus brings us through his blood, through what he has done, through being in Christ. We have access to the Father. This word is only used three times in the entire New Testament, but it's significant each time. One of them is here, and then the other one is actually in, in the book of Ephesians itself. Ephesians 3.12, notice there. It says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. But it's also used in Romans 5, and here on your handout you'll see that. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, notice this. We have access through Jesus, through justification, through having peace with God. We now have access. We can go boldly, Ephesians 3 tells us. We have access to God, and we stand in grace... And we rejoice because we have this hope that one day we will see him as he is. And see, now notice here how Romans 5 and 1 John 3 are attached together. We have hope, it says at the end of Romans 5, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have this access and we will one day be glorified with God. And John says the same thing when he says in verse 3, and everyone who has this, oh, we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this hope we have purifies us. So what is this access? Well, I'm, I'm going to borrow uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' good illustration on this. Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, this is what it means to have access with God. Think in your mind right now of a very, very high up important CEO of a company. He is the head of a huge multinational corporation. He is the head. And as the head of that corporation, he is responsible to set the vision, set the tone, put people. He's got manager after manager after manager after manager after manager underneath him. They have jobs. They have responsibilities. And access to this man is very, very limited. He's very busy. You have very little time with him. And if you walk in there and you're going to be in there, you better be prepared and you better use that time wisely because that's what you need. And that man, that CEO walking through that corporation, nobody is going to give him, or somebody did, if he was walking through one of his plants for some reason and one of the workers there said, hey, this punch press isn't working here. Hey, can you help me out? The CEO would say, "Yeah, uh, sir, that is not my responsibility. I have, I have manager upon manager upon manager upon manager upon manager that can take care of that. That is not something that I should be involved in at all. He's more important than that, and he's, and he's gone. So I want you to picture him in his office now. This man is in his office, and outside of his office, 
There's a secretary. He has a guarded office. Nobody's allowed to get through her before they get to him. He has a guarded office, and that secretary's there. And in that waiting room are all of these very nervous but very high-powered people. These are vice presidents. These are people that are in charge of vast portions of his... These may be plant managers. They're sitting there. They're happy that they got access. They're happy that they can go in that office. They have their five minutes, and they're just feverishly going through their, their notes, making sure that they have only the most important things that he and he alone has to deal with so they don't get booted out of that office. And they come to the secretary and she says, I notice on your thing he's running a little late. Please sit over there. He'll be with you within the next hour. And they're sitting there feverishly going through their notes. And all of a sudden, a little four-year-old girl comes walking in with a broken dolly. She walks through that room of all of those important vice presidents and plant managers. She walks past the secretary. The secretary opens the door very quickly. She walks into the office of that great and powerful man. He immediately sees her, gives out a shout of delight, gets off of his desk, down onto his knees, and sees that the doll is broken and takes the time to get whatever he needs, tape, stapler, whatever, to get this doll fixed. So, and he sits there, and he fixes her doll, and he's sitting on the carpet with her, and he's playing with the doll with her, and they're playing dolly. And if that door opened, and all of those important people saw him, they wouldn't, they'd be confused at first until they found out this is his daughter. You have that kind of access to God, children of God. You have that kind of access. You can go right into his presence. You can bring all of your concerns and all of your cares. You can bring all of your needs and all of your anxieties. And you immediately have that kind of access. And in fact, in fact, the Bible tells us that we are to go in there boldly with confidence that we have the right to get in there and see him. It would be crazy for one of the children of the CEO to go to the secretary and say, may I please have an appointment? Can you get me on the calendar? And she looks and says, well, maybe you can get on there in three months. And how could he possibly? And he's not going to fix dollies yet. No, no, no. We're to boldly walk in. We're to boldly come in because we have access because we are his children. You Behold what manner of love that God would call us children of his children and we are his children. So let's then apply this to ourselves. What should all of this say and mean to us? Well, first of all, this should fill us with peace and joy and a sense of privilege that he has given us this wonderful title and we have this relationship of awe and wonder that should permeate us 24-7. I love the song that we sang about the nighttime. In the middle of the night, you're a child of God. In the middle of the day, you're a child of God. In the rush, rush, rush of busyness when you don't even have time to think about God as you ought to, you're still his child. You're standing in grace. He loves you. He delights in you. You're a child of God when you're healthy. You're a child of God when you're sick. You're a child of God during trials. You're a child of God during times of peace. You're always a child of God. You're going to always be a child of God. And you are going to be in his family forever and ever and ever. And he is preparing a place for you now because he wants you there to be with him. And this should fill us with hope. With hope. 
Something the world does not have, but we should be filled with it. Again, look at 1 John 3. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him. Look at Romans 5, 1. He says, in 5, 2, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are going to be in the presence of God. The moment that we die, we will be in the presence of our Father and we will delight and we will see our Father face to face. We will be with him. We will be in his arms. We will sit on his lap. We will literally walk into the very throne room of all reality, the throne room of God in heaven, and we will be welcomed there as his, as his, as his children, as his delight, as the apple of his eye. Behold what manner of love that we would be called children of God. Dear friends, this should have impact upon us instantly. Number one, it should melt away any insecurities that you have in your life. Do you have insecurities in your life? Did mean people make you insecure? Did nasty people? Did people were people constantly criticizing you? Were people getting down on you? Did you have an earthly parent? who was speaking down on you all the time, always, always trying to get you to do something different and be better. So you got to the point that you're just kind of insecure. You second-guess yourself. You're not sure you're that important. You're not sure that you're, you're that beloved. You walk into a room of people, and, you, and you're constantly self-conscious that, that, well, these people haven't liked me. Maybe they won't like me. Maybe they won't love me. That's not the way you're supposed to be. Because you are a child of God. He loves you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. He sent his son to die for you. He's, he's, he's totally committed to you. He loves you. He delights in you. He is, he is for you. He is your God. And all of these insecurities should just, should just melt away for you. All of these insecurities. I'm not saying you should be arrogant. But I'm saying you should have the, a strength that comes from this. God loves me. You don't need to love me. It doesn't matter if you love me or not. God loves me. The infinite God loves me. So you don't approve of me. That's okay. He loves me. In fact, my job isn't to be loved by you. My job is to love you. My job is to be a conduit of the love of God to love you. But I don't need your love in order to somehow fill me up. I'm full. I'm full. That's how this should have a practical impact on us. Think of anxieties. Think of anxieties. We become nervous. We become anxious. We become worried. How's this going to play out? What's going to happen? What's the implications? Will I have the resources? Will I have the strength? Will I just, can, what, am I dangerous? What could happen? What, what if, what if, what if, what if this, what if this happens? We have these anxieties about us. And what this is supposed to do is take care of these anxieties. And this is what Jesus was trying to get at. Now think of Jesus. He comes straight from the throne room of his father. He knows his father. He knows the glory. He knows the greatness. He knows the power. He knows the majesty. He knows everything that his father is. And he knows that his father loves us as his children. And he has been sent here. And what does Jesus say? Stop worrying. You have a heavenly father Quit worrying. Stop worrying. He cares for the birds. He cares for the flowers. He's intimately involved. He's actively involved. And he loves you more than them. And he's going to take care of you. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. And we need to get to the point that we believe this. 
Phil Kagan, in a little song that he wrote, has this little dialogue, and it says, the rob says, the robin to the sparrow, friend, I'd really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sp robin to the sparrow, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. God cares for the birds. He's going to care for you. And Jesus tells us, stop worrying. It's not going to do you any good. In fact, if you think about it, dear friends, our anxieties are dumb. This is dumb. And sometimes we have to talk to ourselves. Sometimes I talk to myself, Todd, this is stupid. You're being dumb. God's your father. You're going to be fine. He loves you. This whole this, this, this should purify us and sanctify us. Look at John at the end of the verse there. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. You want to be like God. What's another thing? What's another implication of this fact that we are children of God? Well, it should deeply impact how we experience and treat each other. How we experience and treat each other. You see, dear friends, we have been blessed here in this church. We've been, in, in, in many ways, I think I can honestly say, because I've known so many churches over the time, and both personally and then you know, through their pastors and everything. We have been uniquely blessed here. And there's a phrase that is used here more common than anything else. In fact, Jeff started teaching on it in Sunday school this Sunday. I was almost saying, Jeff, stop, stop. I'm going to preach on this. And that is church family. We have the blessing of being a small church. And one of the blessings of being a small church is that we have, and God has, by the power of the Holy Spirit, nurtured in our midst here a sense of family. And many of you feel more close to this family than you do to your actual blood family. And there's, that's the way it's supposed to we be. Look at the Galatians 6 passage. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the, the household of faith. This is the exact same word that's used in Ephesians, the family of faith. We have a family, and there is a closeness here. And we need to, 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 to recognize to that, and we need to continue to nurture that. We need to get to know one another. We need to care for one another. We need to deepen our ties with one another. We need to recognize that. And I, think, and I have a passion for this, that the church be close-knit, and the church be loving, and, and that we need tens of thousands of local churches all around the world, hundreds of thousands of these close-knit bodies, these family families. And then when people come from outside within, we need to be careful that we don't stick with our little clique, but that we get that. to know and visitors, I, I we get to know them, and we envelop, envelop them into this family, because I personally believe that one of the most powerful impacts that the church is going to have in the next generation, the starting now, in the generation to come, is so many people come out of broken families, families. And then so many people are so lonely, so many people have been isolated by technology, that for them to be absorbed and to come in and to be absorbed and to be loved by the people of God, and to care for the people of God, and to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, is going to be huge. It's going to be huge, and it's going to have an impact upon the church. So many people are. I mean, upon the world. So many people have been isolated by technology, and we're called in Scripture and to come in and to be to look at each other and say, "By the people of God, that's my brother." And to care for the people of God and to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm connected. It's going to be huge. We have the same spirit. The spirit of God lives upon the church. I mean, upon the world. I meant to grab a and book in there just to show you, just hold up and show you. To look at each other and say, I want to tell you the story that's as we brother. close here on Robert Carter III. 
I'm, I love history, I'm and one of the areas that I've have spent a lot of time studying and reading on is the Civil War. It's such That's a complex fun. war. There was so much going on there, and it's not. It's much more complex than it's usually presented in, in and such. But as I was studying on slavery, and I was studying about Southern culture and Northern culture, studying about colonial America, I asked the question, was there ever a time when a person, because, because I knew of the deep spirituality, especially that was in the South and in colonial America, there was a deep spirituality. Did any slave owner ever look outside of his mansion see a shack with a slave family living in it person, and say, because, because I knew of the deep well, he's reading his Bible, say, wait a minute, South and in colonial hold on. Did Number one, I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself. I'm living in this mansion and they're living like that. See a that shack right. with a slave family and number two, and say, I'm a Christian, well, they're Christians. Bible, say, wait a minute. They're my brethren, hold on. wait a minute. Number and one, so I literally wanted myself. to know somebody's story who did this, and I Googled it. And number person two, who emancipated his slaves because he became a Christian. a Christian. They're Christians. And a book came up. They're my brethren. And I bought the book and I read it. And it's a and book so about I a man named Robert Carter III. Wanted to know Robert somebody's Carter story III was did actually this. one of the wealthiest men who ever person lived who emancipated his slaves America. because he became a Christian. George Washington was and his neighbor. Came. Thomas Jefferson was his other neighbor. I wish they'd have learned something it's from him. It's a book about a man named Robert, Robert Carter. You, you've seen the pictures of Robert mansions and, was and slaves and big mansion houses. Robert Carter owned. George Washington was his neighbor. Wait for it. Thomas Jefferson was his other neighbor. I wish they'd have learned something plantations. from him. Plantations. Robert Carter. He, Not you've one. You've seen the pictures of mansions. He owned twelve slaves. He was the largest slaveholder in the United States of America. George Washington, who was a large slaveholder, owned, uh, I mean, sorry, Thomas Jefferson, owned Not over a hundred slaves, 150 slaves. That was, a, was, that was the huge. The average slaveholder slave owned United States one to four America. slaves. George Thomas Washington Jefferson was, was a large huge, hundred and some. Robert I mean, Carter sorry, owned four hundred and fifty. And one of the reasons was because Robert Carter did not believe in dividing up slaves. Robert Carter was an Episcopalian, sort of, Thomas sort of, because everybody was in Virginia at that time, and uh, he was he was nominal. And then Robert Carter the heard the gospel. Robert Carter did not believe in dividing and he came to Christ. Robert Carter was an Episcopalian. And he joined sort of, sort of, everybody a small local church and, uh, like this. He was, uh, it was he a was Baptistic nominal. church and Robert Carter that preached the gospel. The gospel. And Robert Carter and joined it. Now, you can imagine Christ, when Robert Carter walked into that church building where there was mostly poor people and slaves, like uh, it was a all of them, church, almost most of them, his slaves, gospel, when Robert, Robert Carter, Carter walked through that door, now, that would be like Elon Musk or Bill Gates walking into a room like where this. There was mostly poor the, the air went out of the room. Slaves, Robert Carter just humbly sat there. All of them, almost most and Robert of them Carter is sitting there listening, reading the word, hearing the word preached. Sometimes his slaves are preaching to him. Looked at his brothers and sisters beside him and they were black. And Robert, and Robert Carter, Carter realized, there, listening, reading, the word, reading the word, hearing the word something preach, isn't right here. When they constituted the church, because it was a new church, they wanted to put Robert Carter's name first. Black. He said, no, no, we go in alphabetical order. And so you see, you'll see these slave names and Robert Carter and then a few of the whites. And right it, was, it was a truly church, integrated a church, church because it was a gospel church. They weren't trying to integrate. They weren't trying to be diverse. They just were trying to serve Jesus and that usually does it. And then he began to emancipate his slaves. To give slaves their freedom back then in Virginia, but he started doing it. And he not just gave them their freedom, 
because that was a piece of paper, and you could take that paper, and then the, the slaves would run, try to get north, and then people would grab them, rip up the paper, and they would take them. And Robert Carter just kept writing it out. He, as soon as he found out about it, he said, no, no, I'm Robert Carter. He's free. I'm free. He also gave them the amount of money that they would need to provide for themselves. He offered them to stay. They would stay free. He would put them in good housing. Robert Carter did all that, and he was hated and despised by Virginia. His children took him to court. They thought he was giving away all of their wealth. And in the end, Robert Carter had to leave or else he was going to be tarred and feathered. He had to leave, flee out of Virginia, and he died alone in Baltimore in an apartment. had to leave or else he was going to be tarred and feathered. He had to leave, flee out of Virginia, and he died alone in Baltimore in an apartment. Why? He lived out what it means to be children of God. He lived out our very last verse. By this we know he love lived because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brother. But whoever has this, this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him and does not love, does not, how does the love of God abide in him? And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has given us this commandment. Let's treat one another as brothers and sisters in be the family and people of God here. And if you're still on the outside, if you're still not a Christian, if that means you're on the outside. You're not part of the family of God. You might be sitting here and your parents may be part of the family of God, but you're not part of the family of God. You're not part of the family of God. You need to realize that if you die in this state, you will die forever on the outside. And while your family is enjoying the warm fellowship of their homes that are being prepared for them even now in living with God in the new heavens and new earth with Christ, right, and God right there in the center with them, and then being with their father and being with their elder brother and enjoying all of the pleasures, you will be on the outside. You will be in utter darkness. You will be in hell. You will never taste any of that goodness. You will be in utter darkness. You will be in hell. You will never taste any of that goodness. Why? Because God is calling you. It's so unnecessary. He's calling you. Come to my family. Because God is calling you. Come to my family and He's be saved. You. Come, to my Come just as you are, and I will cleanse you and forgive you. Come, turn away from Come the world. Come just as you are, and I will cleanse you and I will give you everlasting Come, turn away from Let's the world. Let's pray together. Come to me, and I will give you everlasting Father in heaven, we ask that you would please be with us. Father Help us, we, we pray, Father, to understand how incredibly blessed we are. Help us to stop half-believing this. Help us to stop acting like this isn't true. Help us to stop. Father, it is true. Now we are the children of you. Help us, we pray. Help us to live in the joy and the boldness of this accent. And the Help us, we pray. Of this Thank you that now you invite Help us, us we pray. to a dinner Thank with you, you, you us a family meal. Bless this meal, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.